0: Hello, welcome, thanks for listening. This is a history of Indonesia. Right up front, when I began the podcast, I declared that I was no expert. I'd be learning with you as I did the research and put the shows together. In essence, my contract with you was that, at the very least, I would do the reading so that you didn't have to. I hope that maybe something I brought up would reinforce or add to whatever you already knew, or if you were so inclined that something I mentioned might pique your interest enough that you could explore it for yourself in greater depth. Several months in, I'm still no expert, but I've learnt a hell of a lot about my northern neighbours. I hope at least some of what you've listened to here has stuck with you as well. Before I started the podcast, I'd never heard of George Seedes or Funan or Borobudur or Shrivajaya or Fa Shen or Yi Ching or the Denisovans or the Toba Supereruption and I've filled in lots of gaps in my knowledge of Asian history. The Silk Road, Chinese dynasties, Buddhism, Indian rulers, information that I hadn't understood in any detail, is now much clearer to me. Even though we've still got a long way to go, I thought I should acknowledge that we've come to a bit of a milestone. Through prehistory, then into the early trading and farming empires of Java and Sumatra, we've reached the point in Indonesia's history where we leave the almost unknowable world of ancient Indonesia, and shift into what becomes a more recognisable period. The East Javanese kingdoms we'll look at today emerged in the aftermath of the sharp collapse of Central Java's kingdoms at the end of the first millennium. Srivijaya's empire was on a slow decline, and regional power ultimately consolidated in East Java. From here on in, the number of sources we have to work with increases, Copper plate inscriptions that were in regular use, rather than the occasional stone inscription, helped to sharpen our view. And those records can be cross-referenced with more writing from more frequent Arabic, Chinese and other travellers. Some of the cultural developments from this period are still the treasured symbols of Javanese and Indonesian identity today. From our perspective, this time may seem like a transition between ancient and modern, But like all of us, the people living through this period had little concept of the large, long-term forces that were shaping their world over decades and centuries. The Chola Empire was fast becoming a major influence in the Bay of Bengal and the Straits of Malacca, especially after raiding Srivijaya. China was reuniting yet again and was more outward-looking, as the Song replaced the Tang dynasty. Islam continued its unstoppable rise, and started to noticeably affect Southeast Asia. Up to this period, Indian cultural influences have been the obvious outside force on the archipelago. But it's under the Song dynasty that the Chinese really take to the sea. Instead of letting traders come to their ports, they venture out as merchants. It's fair to say that this is the genesis of the Chinese diaspora in Southeast Asia. It builds and builds, and it's still happening today. These Chinese merchants brought their culture with them they probably introduced the cash economy through their coinage. Deep into the Song period, the Chinese had to ban cash payments to Southeast Asia because of the drain on the metal supply. The Song's embrace of maritime Southeast Asia grew out of necessity as well. Another distant power was threatening China in the north and west, cutting off the trade routes. In time, this new threat to China would become the largest land power the world had ever known. They reshaped the world so much, that by the time the Mongol Empire split apart, we start to see the green shoots of our modern world. No longer disconnected worlds with only occasional contact, the civilizations of Eurasia, and to a lesser degree Africa, were by the 1300s deeply intertwined with each other. The supposedly destructive Mongols had somehow created the platform for the medieval world to become the modern age. Over the next two episodes, we'll look at this period and how East Java flourished. Firstly, from the collapse of Central Java through to the rise of the Qadiri and Singhasari kingdoms. And then next episode, we'll look in detail at Majapahit, arguably Indonesia's greatest kingdom. The chain of events that finally led to Majapahit's rise began in 1280, when China sent the first of three diplomatic missions to Java. China was once again a unified kingdom, but now it was the Yuan dynasty, under Kublai Khan, the Mongol grandson of Genghis Khan. Over the years, Mongol rulers had come a long way. They'd traded their patchwork, rodent-hide clothing for fine silks. They'd incorporated additional military tactics to their fighting styles. By the late 13th century, they were attacking as far away as Poland in Europe Syria in the Middle East, Russia in the North, and Burma, Thailand and Vietnam in the South. So the ambitious Mongol looking for new territory to conquer was running out of land on the Eurasian mainland. The Mongols themselves were now more like a series of independent kingdoms rather than a united confederation. Their largest rivals were each other. With an uneasy truce between Mongol realms... Kublai Khan looked out over the ocean for new opportunities. The Mongols were no longer just brutal horse archers. They'd already mastered siege tactics while conquering China, and now that they were running out of land to conquer, why not reinvent themselves again as the universal rulers of the sea as well? And that's just what they did. Around the same time the Mongols were having their infamous attempts at invading Japan, they'd also sent two separate diplomatic missions to Java neither met with much success. Given that the Mongols usually demanded complete submission and significant tribute, it's not hard to see why the first two envoys to Java went back to China empty-handed. The third mission, in 1289, didn't get any better. The Javanese ruler, Kurtanagara, depending on which version of the story is being told, either cut off the Mongol envoy's nose and or his ears, Or maybe he just branded the envoy's face with a hot iron. Whatever the damage, the Yuan court received a fairly clear message. When the envoy returned to China, a furious Kublai Khan quickly began planning his reply. A fleet of a thousand ships, manned with 20,000 soldiers, was dispatched to deal with East Java's resistance. We'll leave Kublai Khan and his invasion fleet there for the moment, and catch up with what had been going on in East Java in the preceding centuries. Was Kurtanagara the confident heir to a great people ready to resist the Mongol threat, or had he just massively overplayed his hand? The earliest record we have of East Java's settlements is a 760 CE inscription, a dedication of a temple to Augusta, a divine mythic Indian scholar monk. There's evidence of wet rice cultivation from 804, two navigable rivers, the Brantas and Solo make the area ideal for trade and cultivation. So settlements existed way before central Java's collapse, and in fact the population seems to be expanding before the 925 eruption of Mount Merapi that we covered last episode. We start to hear more about East Java when the central Javanese ruler Balatung conquered territory around the Brantus River. There's a 905 inscription that describes Balatung's successful invasion of Bali, and the granting of land in East Java, to two lords that helped with the attack. Over the 10th century, many communities developed in the highlands and the river deltas. The Mount Merapi eruption only seems to have accelerated the migration from central Java that was already underway. On the inscriptions left to us, a lot is made of rulers improving hydraulic networks, canals, dams and dikes the granting of land involved elaborate ceremonies that established reciprocal responsibilities of rulers and the ruled. So this was a time of pioneering development and expansion, a tough frontier where ambitious people could hope to succeed and existing populations had to adapt. Here are a couple of quotes showing how quickly things were progressing in East Java, one from the early 11th century and one from only slightly later. Quote, Who disturbs the village? He may be brought to destruction. He may be killed by all the gods in such a way that he may not turn behind. He may not look behind. He may be pushed in the front side, struck on the left side. His mouth may be struck. His forehead may be battered. His belly may be ripped open. His intestines may be ripped out. His entrails may be drawn out. His heart may be plucked out. His flesh may be eaten. His blood may be drunk up. Then he may be trampled upon. Lastly, he may be killed. End quote. So, um, yeah, it's graphic, uh, aggressive, but ultimately it reveals an insecurity. You only have to make threats like that if your position is being somewhat challenged or somewhat precarious. The second quote is quite different. Quote, This dam was built in order to bring about benefits for the world and the revival of all the holy religious foundations. This was brought about through the command of His Majesty, Er lunga because he visibly showers upon the world the elixir of life, that is, his affection, causing a rain of merit. By this construction, he will serve to perfect all the holy temple foundations, for the benefit of all of his subjects, old and young who dwell in the sanctified realm of the island of Java. His reason for causing the source of devotion to spread is to provide a shining example for all the world, and also to add to the splendour of his realm. This is the reason for conducting himself as a universal monarch, as he has in undertaking this construction, which will bring about daily well-being for the world, thus providing a sign to the world that his majesty is not interested solely in his own advantage. End quote. So it's a much more assured and settled message reflecting a more secure and certain leadership. It was also a more centralised state. Rulers had greater authority and more opportunities to exploit all the advantages East Java had to offer. These communities must have been doing something right because Shrivijaya felt the need to attack in 925. A local leader, Pu Sindok, fought off this early challenge. And eventually became the leader of Mataram. From this time on, the Mataram king's court was in East Java rather than the traditional area around Mount Merapi. It does make me wonder, though, did Srivijaya attack preemptively before this region became too strong, or was East Java already challenging Srivijaya? The shift of the royal court suggests it was already quite powerful. The days of cooperation between Srivijaya and Java were long gone. The Salendras now ruled the Srivijaya Maritime Empire from Sumatra, having lost influence in Java. The East Javanese realm was run by the descendants of the Sanjaya dynasty that had exiled the Salendras. There's a fair amount of evidence that shifting the location of the capital and changing the dynastic family was part of a formal rhythm of renewal that happened every four generations. We're not certain about this, but the shift to a new sacred mountain around modern-day Mount Arjuno south of Surabaya may have been part of this tradition. The new location on the eastern tip of Java presented a real challenge to Srivijaya's supremacy. The Brantas River emptied into a calm bay, protected by the large island of Madura to the north. The area provided safe harbour for traders and soon became a competitor to Srivijayan dominance of trade in the eastern archipelago. The Solo River, just to the north of the Brantis, stretched right back into the central Javan heartland. The Brantis snaked south and east around Mount Arjuno, connecting the coast and the fertile hinterland into a vast network of agricultural and trading communities. So East Java had all the natural assets that made for a successful realm. The ruler could command a large population, and being at the halfway point between the Straits of Malacca and the Spice Islands, meant that they were arguably better placed to control the spice trade. So the Srivijayan attack, fought off by Dok, would be just the first of many battles. By the 990s, East Java was strong enough to expand its reach to territory in central Java, Bali and Borneo. In 992, they launched their own attack on the Srivijayan capital, Palembang. It was ultimately unsuccessful, but the attack showed Java's growing confidence. Remember, Srivijaya had been the dominant maritime player for generations. The attack was a challenge to the regional status quo, and it seems Srivijaya couldn't immediately retaliate, as it may have been able to do in the past. But retaliate they did. In 1006, on the day of a royal wedding, hosted by what turned out to be the last Mataram ruler, Srivijaya's forces attacked and wiped out the entire royal family. In the next decade, Srivijaya reasserted its control over Central Java, a dominance they hadn't enjoyed for a hundred years or more. In 1017, the Srivijayan mission to China was able to boast of its famous victory and that their ruler was now, quote, king of the ocean lands. So if that was the end of the story, I'm not sure I would have mentioned East Java. Power had reverted to the usual suspects and life went on. But that's not what happened. In an almost too perfect template of the hero's journey, one member of the East Javan royal family had survived Srivijaya's massacre. The young man was taken in by a group of holy men and kept safe in a jungle hideaway. In this period of exile, the king-in-waiting matured and grew to know his land and his people better. He was ultimately enlisted by the locals to lead an army and take back his kingdom. It's not just a story that has echoes in Asia's folklore, but in cultures across the globe, in both history and fiction. It immediately brought to my mind characters like Robin Hood, Moses, Batman and Luke Skywalker. A man of high birth, suffers a major setback, is made a better leader by his ordeals, and ultimately returns to avenge a wrong. And that's pretty much how the story of Erlanger is passed down to us, a story that seems more like myth than history. Erlanga was the son of Balinese king and Javan princess. His name means jumping water, reflecting his Balinese roots and links back to Java. Interestingly for those reading ahead, some 900 years later, the Indonesian Republic's first leader, Sukarno, could boast of a similar heritage. Both men used this pedigree to broaden their appeal beyond Java and help justify their claim to the top job. Erlanga, together with his supporters re-established local rule in 1019 and made peace with Srivijaya. At first he controlled a small realm and concentrated on the perennial problem of water management, building new dams to better control the flow of water to the growing network of farmers and traders. He married a Srivijayan princess and built a Buddhist temple, Srivijayasrama, in her honour, around 1035. By this time the Cholas had raided Srivijaya's capital, Maybe the princess had fled Sumatra in the aftermath, or maybe their union was part of an earlier peace settlement that led to Erlanger's rule. The Chola's raid on Srivijaya certainly worked in Erlanger's favour. With Srivijaya weakened and distracted, he was able to expand his influence in Bali and back to central Java. It's during his reign that the localised version of the Mahabharata was popularised. It's thought to have been seen around this time as an allegory of Erlanger's life. Or another way to look at it is as a familiar narrative template that his life story was made to fit into. So kind of like Charlemagne in Western Europe, Erlanger has a mythic quality. He rebuilt Hindu-Buddhist society in Java and gave his descendants a firm foundation to go on from. But just like the Carolingians, Erlanger thought it'd be a good idea to split his kingdom between his two sons, to avoid a civil war. Does this ever work? History is littered with these stories, and the result usually seems very predictable. But maybe these old kings were wiser than we give them credit for. Maybe they purposely set up this competitive tension as some sort of Darwinian struggle. Maybe they felt the contest itself would eventually produce the rightful heir. After Erlinger's death, there was a civil war, but also periods of unity. The Kediri kingdom, based on the Bruntus River, is more often than not the dominant power during the 11th and 12th centuries. It's during the Kediri period that we see the blossoming of Javanese literature. The local versions of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana were formalised and recorded in the old Javanese language. A local story cycle, the Panji Tales, comes from this time we get our first written evidence of Wayang shadow puppetry from Erlanger's court. So Erlanger and his descendants are remembered as part of a Javanese awakening. After a century marked by natural disasters, displacement and war, they rebooted the glory days of central Java in their new East Javan home. I should clarify that when we're talking about Javanese culture, we're often referring to the Javanese ethnic group rather than all the inhabitants of the island. The ethnic mix on Java can be broken down in a number of ways. Places like Madura go through long periods of Javanese dominance but still retain their own heritage. Other areas have been less influenced by the Javanese. The coastal north continues to this day to have a more cosmopolitan flavour. These days some of the most devout Islamic communities are found on this coastal strip, reflecting the enduring influence of Arabic sailors. And it's not a coincidence that the Dutch established their base on the coastal north of Java. So the coastal north is quite different to the Javanese heartland in places like Jogjakarta and Surabaya. In western Java, the largest minority, the 40 million odd Sundanese, have their own long history that goes back to the earliest Indianized states. Maybe think of the Javanese like the English... They influenced their island like the English influenced Britain, maybe even more so. Even though the island is named Java, the Javanese still share it with people from other traditions. Anyway, the combined resources of both Central and East Java was enough for these kingdoms to start looking even beyond Java and imagine an archipelago-wide empire with the Javanese at the centre. Rather than go through the ins and outs of royal shenanigans, and to avoid the various names the kings went by, let's jump ahead to the other power centre that would become known as Singhasari and look at a character who couldn't be more different from the noble Er Lunger. If Er Lunger is the archetypal hero, a Luke Skywalker-type figure, then Ken O'Roc is more like a cross between, say, Han Solo and Jabba the Hutt, a rogue or a scoundrel at best, but more likely a gangster, a warlord type figure. He's actually quite a bit like the ancient Greek character Odysseus, a cunning trickster who could be treacherous when necessary. Again, Kenoruk's story comes down to us more like myth than history. His story is told in the Pararaton, a book of kings written during the Majapahit period, more than two hundred years after his death. More than half the text is dedicated to the epic story cycle of Kenoruk's life and his founding of the Singhasari Kingdom. The story begins with a familiar scene that's clearly not unique to Western culture. Ken Arok's peasant mother, wanting a better life for her son, puts him in the Brantus River and let him float away, hoping that a wealthier family might find him. Kenarok is taken by another family, but not a wealthy one as hoped for. His foster father turned out to be a thief, and taught the young Kenneruk various criminal skills, and he soon became a very enthusiastic and skilled thief himself. Eventually he becomes a notorious outlaw and, while on the run, is taken in by a kind sage. The sage turns Kenarok's life around, putting him on a law-abiding path, and he's eventually employed in the royal court in Tumapel, located on the upper Brantus River. He becomes obsessed by the king's pregnant wife after seeing her bathing. He abandons his own wife and hatches a cunning plan to kill the king and get the girl. He employs a master swordsmith to make him a top-quality Chris, a curvy dagger or short sword, but Kenneruk grows impatient with the swordsmith's slow, meticulous master crafting of this exceptional Chris. He stabs the maker with the unfinished weapon who curses Kenarok before dying. Back in the Tumapel royal court, Kenarok continues with his plan. He quietly gifts the chris to a greedy loudmouth attendant in the court, who shows off his new strong weapon with its unique pattern. Before long, everyone in the palace knows who the owner of the chris is. One night, Kenarok steals back the chris, sneaks through the palace and kills the king, leaving the chris with the body. In the morning when the king is found dead, with that unique and now bloody Chris the murder weapon, the last part of Kenna Rock's plan plays out. He avenges the king by killing the attendant, who everyone else thought was the owner of the Chris. He declares himself the new ruler and takes the queen as his wife. Years later, Kenna Rock's stepson, remember the queen was pregnant at the time of the king's death, finds out the truth about his stepfather. He kills Rook with the very same Chris that killed his father, fulfilling the swordsmith's curse. But not to be outdone, Rook’s son from his first marriage avenges his father's death by killing his stepbrother and taking the crown. It's an epic of treachery and murder and quite a curious foundation story. The real story is no less interesting than this legend. For the most part, the characters are real figures from the early volatile history of the Singhasari realm. Kenaruk was the founding ruler of this eastern kingdom that would go on to challenge Kadiri. Kadiri was the dominant kingdom on the Brantis and from that strong position had been able to control central Java too. Whenever Kadiri conquered their eastern neighbours though, they rarely held on to the gains for long. The highlands of the upper Brantis had natural advantages that made the people prosperous and their land easy to defend. They also had access to the high ground of the lower Brantis, so they could harass Kadiri activity on the river and retreat to their well protected base when necessary. So for decades they had mostly checked each other's power. But when Ken Rook turned the tables and conquered Kadiri in twelve twenty two, he knocked out his biggest rival and opened up Central Java for his successors. Ken Aruk was followed by several rulers in quick succession. His stepson an assassin, his own son, and eventually Kurtanagara, who was the grandson of the man who assassinated Ken Arok? We met Kirtanagara earlier. He's the one who goes on to disfigure a Mongol envoy. He took control in 1257 and built on Ken Arok's gains. But with Kirtanagara, we come to a bit of a crossroads. Two histories come together. There's the ongoing local story of power in Java and across the archipelago, and Kirtanagara's Singhasari realm was pretty well placed to control the region. But he ran into the Mongol juggernaut. The Mongols just had an insatiable appetite for conquest. They saw it as their destiny to be universal rulers, and Southeast Asia was their obvious next step. But Southeast Asia's maritime kingdoms were used to negotiating mutually beneficial agreements with outside powers, not just rolling over to them. By the 1280s, Singh Hasari, under the long reign of Kurtanagara, had grown to control a crescent shaped maritime empire that stretched from the Spice Islands in the east to holdings on the Malay Peninsula in the west. Increased Mongol activity in Southeast Asia might just have been about chasing down the remnants of the Song military, but maybe it was more coordinated. Maybe it was a plan to eventually control the sea trade. Either way, surely Kurtanagara realized who he was messing with. It's hard to imagine he didn't understand the seriousness of maiming a Mongol official. Here's a couple of harrowing quotes of the fall of Baghdad to the Mongols. This happened around the same time as Kurtanagara came to power. Quote, the people were killed, both from inside and outside, or were carried away wounded. In this way was Baghdad besieged and terrorized for fifty days. They razed to the ground the walls and filled in the moat which was as deep as the contemplation of rational men. Then they swept through the city like hungry falcons attacking a flight of doves, or like raging wolves attacking sheep, with loose rein and shameless faces, murdering and spreading fear. The massacre was so great that the blood of the slain flowed in a river like the Nile, red as the wood used in dying. Those hidden behind the veils of the great harem were dragged like the hair of the idols through the streets and alleys, Each of them became a plaything in the hands of the Tatar monster, and the brightness of the day became darkened for those mothers of virtue. And this is another account of the same event. Quote, For several years I put off reporting this event. I found it terrifying and felt revulsion at recounting it. Oh, would that my mother have never borne me, that I had died before and that I were forgotten. The report compromises the story of a tremendous disaster, such as had never happened before, and which struck all the world. They killed women, men and children, ripped open the bodies of the pregnant and slaughtered the unborn. End quote. I'm not saying Kurtanagara was aware of this sort of detail, but the fall of Baghdad, that had been one of the great cities of the world for centuries, would have resonated around the trading networks that Java relied on. You'd think that by the late 1200s, The Mongols' reputation would have preceded them, and they weren't a distant threat. They had a much closer presence in Burma, Thailand and Vietnam. Kurtanagara might have been jumping at shadows, maybe in the process of trying to consolidate power against a perceived Mongol threat, he inadvertently brought them down on himself. There is some evidence that Kurtanagara's raid on Malayu in the Straits of Malacca was seen by the Mongols as an attempt to limit Mongol access to maritime Southeast Asia. There's a limit to what we can know, and the evidence we do have makes a couple of theories plausible. In any case, the stage was set. Kurtanagara had drawn his line in the sand, right across that Mongol envoy's face. Kublai Khan had accepted the challenge and sent the massive fleet and thousands of soldiers to deal with Java's resistance but evidently the ghost of Kenaruk and his treacherous ways were not finished creating discord in Singh With the Mongol fleet on the way, Kurtanagara was killed by a local rival and heir to the Kadiri kingdom. What now? The fleet off Java's coast was primed for some raiding and pillaging. Would the new Singhasari ruler inherit the wrath of the Mongols off his shore? Could he defuse the crisis now that Kurtanagara was gone? The admirals in charge of the invasion could hardly just turn around and go home. But Kirtanagara's son in law and heir, Rudin Vijaya, had fled and was the first to get to the Mongols. He agreed to pay tribute and submit to Mongol rule, accepting in an instant what his father in law had resisted for so long. He would lead the invaders to the new king. In exchange, the Mongols would leave him in charge as their loyal vassal. The Mongols probably couldn't believe their luck. Kurtanagara was dead and the kingdom they were invading was divided. With Ruddin Vijaya on their side, they now had local knowledge and support. All that was left to do was unseat the usurper, place their own man in charge, and along the way they could do a bit of plundering to keep their troops happy as well. The Kadiri forces were swiftly overwhelmed by the combined forces of Ruddin Vijaya and his new best friends. While the Mongols celebrated their victory... Radin Vijaya returned home, supposedly to prepare his tribute payment. But he was planning his own bit of treachery that would have made Ken Arok proud. Now that he had used the Mongols to defeat his rivals, he began coordinating a guerrilla campaign against them. The Mongol forces, stuck deep in Java's hinterland and a long way from home, were harassed by the locals all the way down the Brantas. By the time they reached the coast, they'd suffered heavy losses, and were relieved to escape. Unsurprisingly, there's little said about this defeat in Chinese records. It's downplayed as simply a restoration of order that they helped secure, which is not completely untrue, but certainly not the whole story. The Mongol Empire that had sacked Baghdad, terrified Europe, and conquered China, met its match in East Java when the Singh Kingdom harnessed its long tradition of treachery to repel an invader. With the defeat of the Mongols, a new era began. Just as Srivijaya had become supreme centuries before, now once again, there was one dominant power across the archipelago. Radin Vijaya's victory marks the founding of the Majapahit Empire, and it would become a name that resonated through the years of colonial rule, and inspired a nationalist movement hundreds of years later. Next time, We'll look at Majapahit in detail as it rises to be the greatest of the Hindu-Buddhist states and then adapts to another international faith, Islam. If you want to get in touch, email anotherhistorypodcast at gmail.com Facebook History of Indonesia Podcast Twitter at Another Hist A-N-O-T-H-E-R-H-I-S-T-P-O-D Another Hist Pod And rate and review on whatever platform you use That'd be appreciated. Again, thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.